Good morning. Oh, these days are not all easy. And, uh, you know, how many know that God laughs at our plans? Have you heard that? Uh, so uh, two weeks ago, I was installed as an elder at the church, and God has yes, so blessed us and affirmed us in that. Uh, two days later, the Air Force and God decided to, to laugh at my plans and give me uh, sudden orders to Turkey for a year. And... Uh, I, I'm a little torn. You're going to have the benefit and the privilege of getting to see my family all next year, uh, so please love on them, because uh, I will not. <laughs> I'll be there solo as a wing chaplain in Turkey, which is uh, obviously an amazing opportunity from God to do ministry, but difficult because we love our church family, and I love my uh, personal family as well, and I'm going to be missing them greatly. Uh, I, I was with Dave and Pastor Keith this week in our elders meeting, and, you know, we were talking about some of the challenges that we have just being Christians today. It's not easy to be uh, a functional church in today's America because there are so many things going on there. We were talking about the barriers that get in the way, and one of the barriers that Dave brought up was that People just don't have time for church stuff anymore. You know, they got sports and they got work and they've got, you know, all the other things that fill our space and life. And I said, you know, right now a lot of churches are doing a fasting, right? You know, during Lent they give up something, they give up chocolate or they give up Facebook for 40 days. And I said, wouldn't it be great if maybe we just picked the season of Lent to give up time back to God? If we could create 40 days of white space, that we could give a, a segment of our time, of our busy schedules back to God and say, God, I'm giving you the opportunity to develop something in my life that I've been holding back from you, that I haven't had time for, that maybe I haven't given time to the church that I could have, maybe I haven't given time to come to a small group and get to know somebody, or time in scripture, or time in prayer, but I'm going to give 40 days, or whatever day it is that we're at today, and I know it's not a full 40 to make a sacrifice back to God as I prepare through the Lent season. And so we as church leadership are inviting you, even if you're not getting a full 40 days, don't worry about it being a perfect sacrifice, but to give 40 days of white space to God starting today. That I'm going to make space for God in my life where I've been too busy. And I'm going to look to see what kind of a change that God is developing in my life. And not just in my life, but in my family and in my church. Because we believe that God wants to grow us and he wants to grow our body, but that can only happen out of our obedience. So as a church body, can we agree to that? Can we say, I'm going to give 40 days of white space back to God through this season? Amen? <laughs> Everybody's like wide-eyed. I don't know if I want to commit. Don't put me on the spot, chaps. Well, <laughs> this is something that God has put on the hearts of the church leadership and we're putting it on you, so... Uh, wrestle with that at home. You can uh, send your angry emails to Keith at CCM. <laughs> so because I'm going to Turkey, uh, I kind of had Turkey on the brain, uh, not from eating, but uh, just thinking about, you know, what will I be doing there and what kind of places God's sending me. I'm going to give you a message about Turkey today. 
And now, initially, the idea was hope, and thankfully, hope fits in with this message, uh, ultimately, as we look through the words that God has to speak to the seven churches of Asia Minor in Revelation. And you may say, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. So chapters two through four in Revelation, John the Revelator, he writes this letter to seven churches. And, and when he writes to seven churches, he's really writing not just to churches, but he's writing to each of us. And he's talking about the problems of his day, and he's also talking about the hope that comes if we wrestle with those problems, if we learn to follow God amidst the, the many things that press against our faith. And so for the Christians of John's day, they were facing two major problems in their churches. One was there was a, a Roman cult of worship that demanded that they worship the emperor. They could worship anything else they wanted to, but they had to worship the emperor first. And if they didn't, they would be persecuted and often put to death. And so Christians were being persecuted wholesale for not belonging to this religious cult. And the second problem that they had was there was a group of Christians within the church that were saying, maybe we can just compromise a little bit. Maybe we can water down the faith. Maybe the rules aren't that strict after all. And this teaching had kind of spread throughout these churches that John is writing to. And John is writing to address these two major problems in these churches and the Christians that serve within them. You can kind of call Turkey the other holy land. Turkey, a lot of the, the cities that we read about in the New Testament are kind of in that area. And it's interesting that uh, gentlemen back in the 1800s went to these churches and he did excavations and realized that the things that John talks about in the first, uh, in the second through fourth chapters of Revelation, he uses a, a picture of what the city actually looked like to describe their spiritual condition. And so as he begins to describe the way these cities looked and the, the, the different elements that he found in his, his studies, he begins to parallel that uh, with what John wrote about when he describes the spiritual condition of the churches and by extension, the spiritual condition of the people that are there. We live in a time that's not that different than what they were struggling with. We live in a time of moral relativism, where people are redefining morality and gender and life itself. It's interesting that John doesn't write his letter to the pagan world and say, you need to get your act together. He writes his letter to the Christian churches, and he says, we need to make sure that we stand firm in who we are, in what our identity is in Christ and not be compromised. Now, you can kind of think of these letters. Back then, it was the social media of the day. The way that communication was done is a postal route. And so, as John is writing, he's thinking of each city along the road that would, the carriers, the couriers would follow as they delivered his letters to the churches. And so, the first one that he comes to is in Ephesus. And so, chapter 2 verse 1 it says to the angel of the church in Ephesus write there are, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks along the seven uh, among the seven golden lampstands the tough thing about revelation is anybody here read revelation you go what the heck did he just say I have no idea what he's talking about you know and then you'll go buy like some book and it will describe to you well that's talking about this president and it, those books you can get rid of those books they're, they're usually just uh 
written to try to sell uh, more copies. Um, the best thing that you can do is look at the historical context and try to understand it through that lens and see what the application is for today. What he's really just saying here is that spiritually, what God does in heaven can affect what happens to us here on this earth. That if God can make an impact spiritually, it can impact our physical lives today. And that we can look at things from a spiritual perspective and it can inform our physical lives, our right now. I find hope in that. I find hope in the fact that God doesn't just give me answers for one day in heaven. He gives me answers for how to live my life right now. And it's that hope that I apply to my everyday life, and I hope that you do as well. In verse 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. I also know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary. So he's got some good things to say about Ephesus. You know, out of the churches, Ephesus has a fairly decent report card. He said, you know, you are resisting false teaching. You're doing good things. I'm fairly happy with what's happening in Ephesus. You're enduring the pressures that you're under. And, and I don't know if you felt that way as a Christian. Sometimes you, you get out there, you're reading your Facebook, you're watching the news, and you feel like maybe there's a lot of pressure to conform, to be different. But you know what? You're in church. You're trying to live a Christian life. And not every message is, is intended to make you feel guilty or weighted or, or to change. And so what I always recommend is, you know, if the Holy Spirit convicts you when you're hearing a message, it's probably for you. If he doesn't convict you when you're hearing a message, it's probably for the person sitting next to you, and that's okay, right? But the great thing about the seven churches, there's probably something in here for everyone, including me. And so uh, allow God to speak to that place in your life. Ephesus had been patient, uh, and they'd been bearing up difficulties, you know, that the life of faith can bring. And I know that it can get tiring and wearisome to follow God. We live in a world with a lot of pressures, a lot of disappointments. And at some point, each one of us and everybody in our family is going to get sick. And at some point, each one of us is going to die. And we are going to be under those pressures. And it's easy to want to give up. But in verse 4, he says, But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let everyone who has an ear to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, to everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. So as he's looking at Ephesus, the thing about Ephesus, it used to be a seaport. It was a place that had a lot of ships come in. It was kind of the gateway to the rest of the region. It had a, a, a place of prominence. It was kind of the the lead city for all the other cities, the lead church for all the other churches. And they were excited. They, they received the gospel with joy and thanksgiving. They were passionate about serving God. Do you remember when you first became a Christian? Man, when I first became a Christian, I got the brightest Bible cover I could find. I went around and whacked people over the head with it. I mean, I was excited about Jesus. After a while, people were like, can we talk about anything else? You know, with time, that wanes. And that's probably a good thing when you're like I was and you were a little overzealous and pushed people away from the kingdom. But 
the reality is sometimes we just get tired in our service to God. And we see that in churches, don't we? Churches that at one point are just going great guns in service and they wear thin and they lose that passion. And John is writing to the church and he's saying, I, I hold this against you. You lost your first love. You forgot the thing that was a priority in your life. And, and he compares it to a city that's changed. Now, I said that Ephesus had been a, a powerful seaport. Well, what had happened is the river had come in and the silt had filled the port and it became a vast plain and the boats could no longer get to Ephesus. And even though it was a powerful commercial center because the boats couldn't get there, history left Ephesus behind and it lost its prominence and its place in the world. And that's what John is, is saying Ephesus stands to lose, that if they don't get their passion back for God, they could lose their place, their calling, their uh, identity before God. And he said, if you just hang on, you're going to be nourished. Don't worry about your hunger because I'm going to give you a nourishment that comes from the tree of life. That's, a, that's kind of a veiled promise for eternity. He said, you know, this is about eternal life. This is about things that matter, things that endure. It's not about the temporary. The promise that God has for those that endure, that can't maintain, is that you have an eternity in heaven. It goes beyond the disappointment and the pain and the brokenness of this life. And we all know it takes hard work to maintain passion, doesn't it? I mean, anybody who's ever been married knows that after a few years, sometimes it's hard to keep the spark alive. You've got you to gotta cultivate that. You've got to work at it. You've got to give more than you get sometimes. But it has value and it's worthwhile. And... Uh, I could ask you all to say amen, but I don't want you to get elbowed by your spouse, but it's important, amen? <laughs> there you go. So we need to do that with God as well. We need to go back, spend time with God, and rekindle that fire and that uh, faith. The Ephesians were faithful, but they were marked by change. If you're following along in your crossword, that'll be your first one there. And verse 8, it says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. So in antiquity, Smyrna was destroyed, rebuilt. Then it was destroyed again, built back again. It, it was uh, a, an outpost, and it's major strength that it had an alliance with Rome. And so the thing about Smyrna that was important was that it was kind of a place where Rome set up shop. Uh, they're wealthy and proud and especially uh, proud of the beauty of their city. And if you looked at Smyrna, you could see the buildings rising out from the sea up to this hill. And this hill was like a round hill and it had buildings that surrounded the top of it and they called that the crown of Smyrna. And so as John is writing about this, he's talking about this city that, that looks regal and beautiful and lush and rich and the problem is it had some other issues. It had really poor drainage, and the wind would come in. They called it a zephyr, and it would blow the water up, and the water wouldn't drain, and the sewage would back up. And even though it looked beautiful on the outside, sometimes it brought sickness. There was something wrong with the city. And in verse 9, John says, I, or Jesus, through uh, the writing of John, says, I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you're rich, I know the slander on the part of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. 
Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware the devil is about to throw some of you in prison so that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have affliction, but be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That anyone who has an ear to hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be burned by the second death. So I just wanted to point one thing out here. He talks about the synagogue of Satan and, and he makes a distinction. He's not saying that Jewish people were bad. What he's saying is this particular synagogue was persecuting Christians, probably because some of the Christians had converted from their midst. And he said, they're not really living the way that they're supposed to. But don't worry about it. I'm going to maintain you. I'm going to take care of you. And then he says uh, that beware, uh, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison. That's, that's kind of a, a fancy way of saying you're about to die for what you believe. Because the only prison that they had at the time was the one they held you in as you were awaiting execution. And he said, but don't worry about it because there's another death that you need to be more concerned about and I'm going to save you from that. I'm going to protect you from the one that really matters and I'm going to give you life. The church is seen for who it is. They look rich, but they're really poor. And have you ever seen that in your own life? Have you, have you ever had that sense of, I look good on the outside, but on the inside, there's something wrong. There's something broken. There's something morally or spiritually corrupt or bankrupt. And this is the problem in the church of Sardis is that they look good on the outside. They look wealthy. They look like they have it all together. But inside, there's this sickness that's wheedling away from them. And this letter says you need to address that thing, that thing that is a, a cancer working at you. And, and sin can be that way in our lives, can it? If we allow it to have a foothold, sometimes it can begin to work its way through and destroy us, even if we look good on the outside. And God speaks to the faithful. He uses the images of the inward sickness. And he says, stay faithful. And the crown they're so enamored with on the, the hill, Jesus says, I'm going to give you a better crown. It's going to be better than the wealth and the riches that you have. It's going to be a, a crown that recognizes the life that you live here the life that you live well, the life surrendered to God. You know, God speaks to us uh, as, and he spoke to them as they felt the squeeze of the world to change and to conform. And the reality is we don't owe the world acceptance. We don't need to be accepted by the world for what we believe. We need to be consistent with our own identity before God. There are going to be many times that we're going to be rejected for the things that we believe, that we profess. And it's not necessarily our job to fix the world, but we need to maintain who we are in God so that we can finish well and receive that crown of life. The church in Smyrna was suffering, but God promised us a better life ahead. Verse 12, And to the angel of the work church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a t sharp two-edged sword. I want to stop there for a second. It's not a surprise that uh, the image of the two-edged sword is used here because Pergamum was the seat of authority. It was where the Roman government sat. And that two-edged sword was the kind of sword that Rome carried. It was a sword that cut each direction. It was uh, a symbol of the power of Rome. And as he writes to the city, he's thinking about this place where all of the problems in the region are embodied in the city of Pergamum. And he said, that's the place where Satan lives. And, and when you read Satan in this context, he's really talking about the personification of Rome and its corruption 
and his persecution of the Christians. It's not surprising um, that he used that, that sword reference. And in verse 13 he says, I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is, yet you were holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan lives. So this is, Pergamum's a, a fortified town atop the sill, and it, it is represented by the government and the civil religion. And it's where people are brought to be persecuted for not conforming to the religion of the day. And it's a place where many Christians have been taken and they've been persecuted even unto death for not doing what the government says they're supposed to do. And he says, I see that and I know that some of you have been faithful. Many in the church had suffered there, yet it had felt, held fast to faith despite this. And in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who fought Balak and put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you and uh, soon make you uh, make war against them with the word of my, sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches to everyone who conquers, I will give the name, the, some of the hidden man, manna, and I will give a white stone. And on the white stone, it's written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. So he uses some Old Testament language here to kind of describe a modern problem, a modern problem in their day. The, the Old Testament language he uses, he, he looks back to a time when uh, a neighboring king tried to trick the people of Israel with a false prophet to get them to sin. And he said, that's just what this false teacher is doing in your midst. They're trying to get you to, to eat food sacrificed to idols, and they're trying to get you to fornicate. And both are, those are the things that Paul said not to do. Paul kind of gave you a lot of leeway in your life as Christians. He said, but there's a couple things you shouldn't do. We shouldn't be divided in our alliance, allegiance to God. We should only have one God. And we should not compromise ourselves sexually. Those are the two things that Paul says, these are the rules that we're going to keep. We're not going to follow all these other legalistic rules, but we're going to maintain this life because it honors God. And he said, this new group is coming to the church and they're redefining everything. They're saying, we can throw the old rules out and we can live any way we want to. And John the Revelator, uh, Jesus through John the Revelator is saying, that is not so. We can't change what's important in our practice of faith. That's hard to do in a world that's saturated with compromise, isn't it? We have a world that wants to, to make everything relative. Say, hey, is it okay for you? I, I even heard of a Hillsong pastor this week saying, well, maybe abortion's okay if it's okay for that person's convictions. Scripture's pretty clear that murder's murder. Life is life. And we can't change the rules because they're not convenient for us. But now I'm going to really step on your toes. But you know what the early church did when people were committing infanticide during the, the Roman times? They went after the people that were throwing the babies away. They picked them up and they raised them as their own children. It's not enough to be against something. You have to be for something as well. We have a responsibility to pick up the slack that the world leaves us. There was a, um, 
a prophet in the church that was teaching wrong, and uh, Jesus came very strongly against that compromise. But those who resisted all this compromise would receive a reward. The, the gladiators during those times, if they won a battle, a great battle, they would be given this white stone, and it was kind of a pass that said, you don't have to fight anymore. You can retire. You can, you can go to the lap of luxury. You've fought your battles. You've succeeded. You've won. And what Jesus promises those that endure us, he says, I'm going to give you that kind of a pass. And it's going to have a name written on it. It's going to be a name that gives you entry into heaven. Your name's going to be on a list. It kind of reminds me when I go to the base, right? I have to show them my ID. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot when you live in the United States, but when you live in Baghdad, which I've lived in Baghdad, you really like having a really solid wall around the city, and you really like having an armed guard at the gate, making sure that the wrong people don't get in, that want to do bad things to you, especially when you're me, because when I'm out there, I don't get to carry a gun. <laughs> Everybody else has got a gun. The bad guy's got a gun, the good guy's got a gun, but Chaplin doesn't have a gun. I really like having a wall. I really like having an armed guard. And I really like having an ID that says I get to be into the safe city. And that's what this is talking about. He says everything in your life might not feel safe. Everything in your life might feel out of sync. But guess what? Someday you're going to live in a city with good walls, good protection, and you're going to have an entry card. You're going to get the, um, the reward of belonging to God's city. The church in Pergamum was unfaithful and its foundation was weak. And to the church in Thyatira write, this is verse 18, these are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So Thyatira, it kind of sits on this valley and it was in a really weak spot along the road, so they built up the citadel in the middle of the city to try to make it stronger, and, and it was kind of in the, the place where all the, the merchants and the people would travel through, and so it had a lot of traffic going through. And it was known for having lots of uh, workers, especially in bronze, so it's not surprising that he mentions bronze when he talks, talks about Thyatira. And it, there was a garrison there. I kind of like this because he's talking military speak, and I understand military speak. It was known for linen, craftsmen, and bronze workers. And in verse 19, I know your works, your love, your faith, your servants, and patient endurance. I know your last works are greater than your first, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, and is teaching, beguiling my services, uh, servants to practice fornication and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Beware, I'm throwing her out of bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I'm throwing into great distress, unless they repent of her doings, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. So, using really strong words here to just say, those who follow after this false teaching are going to be held to account for it. Starting to see a theme here, right? Every church is being hit with this false teaching, and Jesus is hitting it straight on saying, I want you to stay pure and I want you to reject those that would come in and teach you the wrong thing. And that means you're going to have to do some work. You're going to have to study scripture. You're going to have to make sure that you're being taught the right thing. When I teach you something and you don't like it, I invite you to go home, search your scriptures, pray really hard about it, make sure you're in the right spot before God because your responsibility isn't to me. Your responsibility is to God. 
Thyatira had been affected by the same heresy. And the picture here compares mixing religion with idolatry to the same thing as cheating on your spouse. Verse 24 says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira don't, uh, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To everything who, everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with the iron rod as when clay pots are shattered. Even as I also received authority from my Father, to the one who conquers I will give the morning star. Let everyone who has an ear to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So the faithful are promised power and authority. This is a weak city in a weak place, and Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to give you strength that you didn't even know you had. This city started out weak and it got stronger, and this church started out weak and it got stronger. I would much rather be the church that started out weak and got stronger than the church that started out strong and failed. Come on now. And sometimes we have those strategic pauses. You know, we have those moments where we are not doing as strong as we used to do, but God is calling us back to account. He's saying, don't lose your first love. Stay strong. Stay the course. Keep your teaching pure. Keep your practice devoted. There were a lot of good works going on in Thyatira. And one of the reasons there were so many good works going on in this city is because even the false teachers were doing good works. You know, they, they wanted to do good works. They embraced the good works. They just didn't want to not sin so much. They wanted to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to follow the Roman religion, and follow Jesus. They wanted to do the good things and at the same time do the things that were sinful because they were fun or they were easy. But the Bible tells us to obey is better than sacrifice. It's not about how much service we give to God if we fail to submit to His rules in our life. The point of conviction is going to be different for each one of us. I don't know where you're at. I just know where I'm at. God is not saying you're rejected because you got sin in your life. He's saying, root the sin out. Deal with it. These letters were not written to condemn Christians. They were to call them back to service, to purity, to help them stay the course so that they could finish well. The world will always try to shape us into its mold because it's less threatening if we're in the mold of the world. They're not convicted. They don't have to change. They're not threatened by our, our beliefs. But we are not accountable to the world. We're accountable to God. We have to stay the course. Thyatira wasn't giving in, and this resolve was making them stronger over time. The church in Thyatira was deceived, yet they were getting stronger. Verse 1, And the angel of the Lord of uh, chapter 3 and the angel of the Lord came to and of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, and you have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my, of God, of my God. So Sardis sits on this hill. And it overlooks this valley. And it's so high up and, and the sheer sides of the platform that it sits on are 1,500 meters high. And there's only one way up. It's a pretty defensible position. 
and they found themselves believing they were strong and impregnable and untouchable. And their pride began to fester. Not just in the city, but also in the church. They have a false sense of confidence, and they're very close to destruction. Verse 3 says, Remember when, then that you received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Sardis seems strong, but at some point, their destruction was going to come unexpectedly. Now, what's interesting about this city is even though it was so strong, the rain would come down and it would wash away the dirt that covered the, the sides of the platform that it stood on, the, the plateau, and it would develop these cracks in the foundation. And those cracks were just wide enough that individuals could climb up and sneak into the city and open the gates, and that's how it was destroyed. So even though it looked strong, its foundation was weak. And there was hidden sin that began to corrupt it and eat away at, at its strength. Verse 4, Yet you still have a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed with them, like them with white robes, and I will not blot your name out for the, from, of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father, before his angels, that everyone who has an ear to listen to what the Spirit is saying in the churches. So the church had fallen short of its reputation. It's on the verge of ruin, of shame, of being impure, of being broken. And, and Jesus says, look, if you just hold on, you're going to be clothed in purity. You're going to be seen for who you are. You're going to be recognized as one of those people that didn't give in, that didn't compromise. You're not going to be pulled down with others that maybe did not maintain their loyalty to God. And your name will be found in the book of life. You know, it's, it's easy to give up, isn't it? Life is difficult. We're all going to be challenged. We talked a little bit about that earlier. And I've known a lot of Christians over the years that uh, the pressure got too high. They got too disappointed by somebody in the church. They, they didn't want to forgive and they just gave up completely. But Jesus says, hang on, hold on. Don't give up. I'm right there beside you. It's worth the sacrifice that you make today for what he's going to give us tomorrow. The people outside the church, they have disappointment too, don't they? They just have less hope. We don't have to turn uh, to distractions or addictions to cover up the pain. We can let God walk through the pain with us. But we can't fall into the trap of expecting to not have it just because we're Christians. The problem for the church in Smyrna was that it appeared to be strong, but it was in fact dead. Verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So Philadelphia, it was up on another important road. It's overlooking two valleys. The problem for it is it was next to some now dormant volcanoes. And those volcanoes would have geologic uh, activity and it would begin to, to rumble. Sort of like uh, the tornadoes that we suffered not too long ago. It, sometimes you just can't ex 
predict what nature is going to do. And these earthquakes were so powerful that in AD 17, a strong earthquake shook the city of Philadelphia and destroyed it to its foundations. And then the aftershocks were so powerful, the people moved outside of the city and they lived in shacks so they wouldn't get hurt or they held on to the rubble so that they wouldn't get shaken. And they never knew when their destruction was going to come. They were afraid. They were insecure. And Jesus writes to them and he says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but are lying. I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word of patient endurance. I will keep from you the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and you will never let go of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of my city, and uh, uh, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. Let anyone who has an ear to le- hear uh, to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So Philadelphia was set up to be a missionary city. It was to spread the, the culture of the Romans throughout the region. And it was good at this job. It had an identity. It knew who it was, but it was shaken. And just like the city, the church was good at missionary work. And Jesus is saying, just hold on. I'm going to make you a pillar, a strong pillar that cannot be shaken, cannot be broken like your city has been broken by the earthquake. Continue to do the good work that you've been called to do. And as a reward, you'd get the name of God written upon your heart. I mean, basically God would own that you're his, that you belong to him. I remember when my son was young, my girls wrote my name on his foot, just like uh, Woody from Toy Story. So everybody knew he was mine. And I think that's kind of what this is getting at, is Jesus will claim us in a way that he will uh, say, this one is mine, this is my kid, he's part of my family. Philadelphia was shaken, but God was rebuilding. And as a church, sometimes we feel that way, don't we? We feel shaken, we feel broken, we feel disappointed by the the events of life. But God says, look, if you hang on, I'm going to give you strength. And I don't know if you've noticed that in your life, but of the many sicknesses and disappointments and losses you've experienced, the ones you've gone through with God have developed a greater strength in you that you didn't have before. And I've heard it said that it's easier to go through disappointment with God than it is to go through it without Him. Philadelphia is being encouraged because they're a faithful church to their calling and to their mission to hang on. And then uh, the last church, and I know somebody out there is going to say amen. Go ahead, get it out of the way. (laughs) I know it's a big piece to bite off. You don't usually hear me preach very long. I get one long sermon a year, and this is it. (laughs) And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. 
So Laodicea sits along uh, this other road on top of a glen, and it's a very strong fortress on that road, and it's known for making wool, and it's known for making eye salve to heal things. It's known for its doctors, and it's also known for one other thing. There's not a whole lot of water right there, so they have to ship it in from six miles away. So the Romans built this big aqueduct, which is like a stone uh, canal. It's like a stone pipe that they have that's elevated. Six miles it would go from the hot springs to the city. So the hot springs were good because they believed it would heal you because it was God's power within the earth to um, create this temperature. And so they believed that they went to the hot springs that w- had healing power. Cold water is good to drink. But when you get hot water shipped six miles along a, an aqueduct, it is no longer hot and it's no longer cold. It's lukewarm and it's gross to drink. And that's the image that Jesus uses to talk about this church. He says, you're just like your water. You're lukewarm. Not good for anything. For you say, I am rich. Verse 17, I have uh, prospered and I need nothing. You do not realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He's speaking to a country that's, or to a city that's very wealthy, to a church that has a lot of stuff, has a lot of businesses. It makes clothes, yet they're naked. It's renowned, yet they're pitiable. They make eyes off to heal people's eyes, but they're blind. He's like, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're a contradiction. In verse 18, therefore I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you can be rich, white robes to clothe you, and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Laodicea wasn't as defined as the other cities. They didn't know who they were. They were too wrapped up in their wealth. They were supposed to be a missionary city, and they failed miserably at that job. They didn't do the thing that they were called to do. And this is the nature of compromise. It drives us to lose our identity in Christ. As we let compromise in, we forget who we're supposed to be. Jesus has given you a purpose in this life. He's given you an identity, and he's given you parameters on how to live that life. But as we begin to compromise those things, we lose our sense of purpose. I'm going to tell you, we also kind of lose our sense of joy, don't we? When we no longer have a forward momentum for God, we lose our sense of self. And this is what had happened to this church it was lukewarm. The church of Laodicea was lukewarm. Verse 19 says, I reprove and discipline those I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. To the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches very simply he's saying correction is tough nobody wants to be corrected this does not sound like a message of hope i know somebody is thinking i got ripped off today i came for the hope message i got the conviction message again pastor keith at ccm.net but here's the reality of it we find hope when we find correction in christ he disciplines us because he loves us He disciplines us so that we can be successful, that we can find life, that we can find hope, that we can find purpose. Hope, purpose, and life and reward come in obedience to God. And it it doesn't stifle our good fun. It opens us up to actually receive a joy that's lasting, meaningful, purposeful. 
we find who we're supposed to be as we get into a right relationship with God. And that's what he's trying to do for these churches. Put them in a right relationship. Take away their corruption and their compromise so that they can find peace and hope and safety. Hope comes from obedience. And that correction comes to each one of us. And that encouragement comes to each one of us. And not every message to these seven churches is for every single one of you. But maybe there was something there for each one of us that we can grab onto and say, God, I want to give you that thing back today. And I think the great thing about uh, the practice of Lent, whether or not you, you do it or not, is it gives us a chance to take a pause for the year to reset some things that maybe we uh, have bad habits in, we have uh, forgotten about, we've lost sight of. And so I want to encourage you again, give God some white space and reset something in your life that maybe has gotten off target, out of balance or compromised. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would bless our church, that you would bless our pastor and help him to be refreshed and uh, renewed. Bless the year ahead. Help us to find ways to revitalize the church, to bring new life in. And God, if there's compromise in us, I pray that you would correct it, root it out, give us strength to endure, and help us to look forward to our reward with you. God, help us to have hope and help that hope to be contagious to the world around us. Give us a sense of the identity you've called us to as a church, and let us walk in that without fear and without failure. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.